We're in the year of 2023. If you pay attention to what's happening around the world today, most of us were still very concerned and regarding the war in Ukraine at this moment. On one hand, and we don't know when and how to stop the behavior of Vladimir Putin. But on the other hand, and we are very concerned about this energy crisis across the continent. Some people argue at this moment, and U.S., particularly from this security standpoint, should put greater effort in terms of battling against uh, the country of, of, of Russia. But on the other hand, as some people believe that it's time that we need to prepare for the Russians' failure. Well, whose side are we on at this moment? And is it really the right time we need to prepare for Russians' collapse and failure? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor today to invite Professor Alexander Motel. Again, Alexander Motel is a professor of political science at Rutgers University, New York. And we are going to discuss some of the relevant issues with the professor today. Well, without further ado, Professor Motel, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Thank you so much for having me and my greetings to all your listeners and watchers and especially to you. Well, thank you, Professor. The pleasure is all mine and I'm very excited about your uh, about our conversation. Now, let's get to the point. Again, Professor, at this moment, again, we're in the year of 2023 and the whole world continues to pay attention to the war in Ukraine. And of course, that your article, and, and, and that's why initially when I discover you, and it's about the pre preparation for Russians collapse. Now help us to understand, even though at this moment, and we can't really understand or comprehend regarding Russians strategy, or should I say Putin strategy, why do you think it's time for us to understand and prepare for Russians failure. How do we understand that? Help us to understand, Professor. Well, there are several possibilities. There are several potential scenarios. Um, and they're all interconnected. Um, so the most extreme variant, the most extreme scenario, the most radical scenario, I should say, is that the Russian Federation as a state could actually fall apart into a variety of constituent units. Mm. Uh, the Federation already consists of something like 80 provinces. Mm. Of that number, 20 plus are, are associated with various non-Russian nationalities, such as the Tatars, the Bashkirs, the Chechens, the Dagestanis, the Buryats, the Yakuts and many, many others. Mm. Um, so at the most radical vision or possibility is that this federation could fall apart mm. somewhat along the lines of what happened to the Soviet Union in 1991 with a variety of new states emerging. Uh, some of them might be fully independent. Some of them might just have greater degrees of autonomy. This could be a peaceful process. This could be a violent process. This could entail civil war. We can talk about those options later on, but this is one possibility. Short of that is the very strong possibility that the Russian political regime 
that Putin has constructed over the last 23 years may collapse. Mm. In other words, the state might remain, but the regime might collapse. Mm. Um, of course, if it does collapse, and there are many cases in history where these sorts of collapses have taken place, it's likely to be accompanied by some kind of violence, civil war, jockeying for power, power struggles, and the rest. So these are the two potential scenarios. The third, uh, which is least radical, is that Putin goes. Mm. Um, and just Putin goes. Um, and it's conceivable that, as, as many analysts have written, Russians as well as others, that he is ill and may be on his last legs. And of course, there is, as we already know, a great degree of criticism within the Russian political elite of Putin. He's losing legitimacy, he's losing popularity, even amongst some of the population. And one can very easily imagine, given Russian and Soviet history, that a coup d'etat could take place. Mm. There were many such coups in Russian imperial history. There were several even in Soviet history. And then even most recently, keep in mind, Putin was brought into power in 1999 in a kind of silent putsch against Yeltsin. Uh, so it's not inconceivable that that could take place. Now, I've treated these as three separate events, uh, but they're not, of course, because mm. if Putin goes, then the system he created, the regime, will be very much weakened, mm. and it could weaken and possibly collapse. Mm. If the system weakens and collapses, then the state becomes vulnerable fragile and could be open to collapse as well. So one could see a kind of cascading effect where Putin's departure leads to power struggles, tensions, a weakening collapse of the regime, which leads to more power struggles and tensions between center and periphery, the Russians and the non-Russians, and then eventually some kind of larger collapse of the entire system. Now, the probability of this happening uh, would have been very low one or two or three years ago. Or low. Let's, mm. put, it, let's put it this. It would have been low. Mm. Thanks to the war which Putin started. Um, and it's a war that Russia cannot win. It's a war that has already weakened Russia. And it's a war that will continue to weaken Russia. And it's a war that will go down in history as one of history's main strategic blunders. Mm. Thanks to this war, the possibility of Putin's being removed has grown. Mm. And with that, the chance of the regime's weakening and collapsing has grown. Mm. So there's again, there's an implied kind of cascading effect here. And my article, in my article, I'm simply saying, we don't know whether this will happen. Mm. I personally believe that it's very likely, but mm. honestly, I don't know that. Mm. It's my theory. It's my hypothesis. Um, but it could happen, mm. and the likelihood that it could happen is much greater now than it was in February of last year, and it will become even greater 
as long as the war continues. Mm. So given that, and given the fact that such a collapse could have enormous geopolitical ramifications, obviously for Russia, obviously for Russia's neighbors, the Balts, the Belarusians, the Ukrainians, uh, the Central Asians, but also obviously for Korea, for the Koreas, Japan, China, India, indeed for all of Eurasia. So given the potential ramifications of such an eventuality, and given the fact that we are not prepared for it, we're not thinking about it. Mm. My article was simply saying, let's start thinking about this. Mm. Um, right? Let's start thinking about this seriously. Um, do we have enough people in the American State Department, for instance, and in other countries of the world? Who understand Tatarstan and Bashkortostan? Mm. How many specialists are there in the world on Yakutia, which is an enormous country right. with vast mineral reserves um, and could become independent? Mm. Uh, so we need to start thinking about this. What does this mean? Um, how do we deal with it? How do we respond to it if and when it happens? The other point that I make in the argument is that these disintegrative tendencies are generated by Putin, the war, and the nature of the system he constructed. Mm. So there's not much that we can do. We, by the we, I mean the world, all right? There's not much that we can do to stop the process or to accelerate the process. It's acquired a dynamic of its own. It will happen or it will not happen, regardless of what you or I or anybody else might want to happen. Mm. Which means that it's futile to think that we should stop it or that we should accelerate it. Mm. What we need to do is to prepare. Prepare for the possibility that this will happen. And it could. Remember what happened in the Soviet Union. As late as 1999, 1991, summer of 91, most analysts and policymakers could not imagine that the Soviet Union would cease to exist. And then in December 31st, 1991, the Soviet Union disappeared. Mm. And everybody was shocked. Mm. So my call is don't be shocked. Mm. Let's prepare. And if it happens, we won't be shocked. And if it doesn't happen, well, we will have learned something about Russia and its constituent republics. You know, Professor, it's interesting that you use the word hypothesis because we know at this moment, even though it's a hypothetical situation, that Russia is heading towards failure. Because we know that, as you mentioned before, since the beginning of the war, that everyone across the international community, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, everyone believed that this war, number one, should not take place at the first time. I mean, it should not take place at the first, you know, initially. And the second, that, that Vladimir Putin is not just to dominate the country of Ukraine and also sending a strong message 
across the globe and regarding his uh, uh, i mean regarding his ruthless behavior and also his you know again ignorant attitude but going back to the article again i want to read something and then i will come back to the question again professor this is what you wrote and i quote we don't know who will win but we can confidently predict that the power struggle will weaken the regime and distract Russia from what remains of the war effort. Now, Professor, here I want to back the question is, how much do you think Vladimir Putin actually care about the people in Russia? Because we know that it's not just about the resources waste. It's not just about the regime waste. It's actually about this consol a consolidarity of the people that really went against this idea of invasion towards Ukraine. So how much do you think that Putin today really care about the people of Russia and willing to give up his relentless attitude in order to satisfy his personal needs? What do you say to that? Well, in terms of I me, mean, you've asked two very good questions. Um, I personally think that Putin's attitude towards his own population is one of, at best, indifference, mm. at worst, um, hatred. Mm. I do not think he regards Russians as anything but useful tools mm. for his policies. And we can see that from the war effort. Um, according to Ukrainian estimates, 112,000, 112,000 Russians have been killed in action. Mm. Even if that estimate is exaggerated, we do know, based on a variety of other sources, that the number is exceptionally high. Mm. Um, 70, 80,000, 90,000 for sure. And keep in mind that the Soviet Union, in nine years of war in Afghanistan, lost 15,000. Mm. Um, so the indifference to the lives of his soldiers is clear. The strategy, and the reason why so many Russians have died, is because the Russian general staff guided by Putin, because he makes the decisions, has essentially instructed the local commanders to send in wave after wave after wave of poorly armed, poorly trained soldiers who serve as cannon fodder. The point of that is they attack, they die, and then the more experienced people follow up with the second or third charges. Mm. But the attitude towards the population is that it is perfectly expendable. It wasn't, by the way, this was exactly the same attitude that Stalin had toward the Soviet people, including the Russians. During World War II, the Russian, the Soviet army would send in wave after wave of soldiers, knowing that they would be killed, mm. knowing that they would be died. Their only function was to, to illustrate where the artillery, the German artillery, was located. But they were willing to sacrifice hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of lives. Um, and this is Putin today, 
sacrificing millions of lives, potentially of Russians. Certainly hundreds and thousands have thus far lost their lives. And of course, his attitude towards Ukrainians is even worse. Um, but the bottom line is he has no consideration for the population per se. For him, they are simply a tool. Mm. As to his own willingness to abandon the war effort, um, the, the second question that you raised, um, he has become so closely associated to the war. Um, I mean, it was always said before the war that Putin is Russia and Russia is Putin. Mm. Now, Putin is the war and the war is Putin. Um, he cannot end the war except with something resembling a so-called victory. Now, I don't know what that would mean in his case because he's unlikely to get it. Uh, but that's why they're so desperate to capture even small towns. Uh, just in the last week, the Russians captured this little town of 10,000, Solidar. It took them five months to capture this town. And the losses of their soldiers seem to be somewhere in the twenty to 30,000 range. Mm. This is incredible. Mm. And the town has no strategic value. The only reason they wanted is because they can, they say, see, we're capturing Russian territory again. Mm. But it's a town of 10,000. Mm. But they're happy to sacrifice thousands of lives for the sake of this. The Wagner Group, it's a private military company. It consists of mercenaries. They've been fighting on the front. A few weeks ago, they started... Uh, including in their ranks prisoners, convicts. And something like 40,000 convicts actually volunteered. They didn't know that they were going to be sent in the first wave of attacks. And it's been estimated reliably that of those 40,000, something like 28,000 have already been killed. That's about 75, 80%. Wow. Which, again, just goes to show that the attitude on the part of the regime towards its own population and its own soldiers is indifference, mm. hatred, and exploitative. Essentially, they're using people for some unclear ends. Mm. You know, Professor, I have to be honest with you that... It saddens me to hear and to understand how Vladimir Putin, again, as the way you put it, uses his own people as the mechanism to satisfy his personal needs. And of course, on one hand, this is not fair to anyone. And no one uh, um, is supposed to be the mechanism or no one's supposed to be the tool and to satisfy, to satisfy personal needs. But on the other hand, I believe there are still some people and what we called the modern patriots unwilling to follow Vladimir Putin's order. You know, again, not too long ago and again last year that we believe that Vladimir Putin was willing to recruit innocent citizens and without any military trainings whatsoever and send them to the front lines. So again, going back to the question, Professor, that really leads me to the next one is, again, this is something also you mentioned in the article, is 
The West should avoid repeating past mistakes, such as trying to help a clearly dying Soviet Union survive and prioritizing Russia's needs over those neighborhoods. Before we bring those neighborhoods coming to the picture, now here's the question is, why do you think? So in other words, what is the motivation for some patriots continue to fight on the front line for Russia to be against the Ukraine? Even though we know such behaviors cannot be cannot be accepted or will never be accepted by the world, what do you think it's in for those people or in for those patriots for Vladimir Putin? Well, it's, it's been estimated by Russian analysts that something like 10 or 15 percent of the Russian population are Putin true believers. Mm. Other people may support him, but these are the hardcore, mm. the ones who share his agenda. Um, and there are two reasons for this. Well, several reasons, again. Uh, one is some of them may have been influenced or brainwashed, if you like, by Putin's propaganda. Mm. Remember, he's been he's been promoting a particular image of Russia and of himself for 23, 24 years. So this is a long time. So there's at least one generation that has grown up and they know only Putin. Mm. So that's the possibility. Um, but it's also the case that there are Russians. We don't know how many, but let's say 10 to 15% for the sake of argument. Sure. Who truly share his agenda. Um, and it's a streak within Russian culture. Goes back to imperial Russian times. It continued through Soviet times. And it was revived by Putin and strengthened and consolidated by Putin. And it's this streak of, it's this belief in Russia's divine greatness. Mm. Uh, Russia is exceptional. It is great. It is meant to be great. Uh, it is invincible. It can never be destroyed. It should never be destroyed. And its job and mission in the world is is to promote russian civilization by all means possible mm. this is very similar to remember the french colonial view of themselves as having the mission civilisatrice and of course in both instances how is this mission brought about primarily by violence mm. Right? How many people died at the hands of the British, the French, and the Russians, and so on and so forth. So the same thing is operative here. There's a very, very, very strong component within Russian political culture, within the Russian mentality, if you like, of Russia as having to be and being and remaining a great imperial power. Anything mm. short of that is a violation of God's will. Mm. And I'm not exaggerating because there is a very close connection between the church and the state in Russia as well. Uh, many people believe that. Now, many of the people who are outside the Horde core are also of that opinion. Mm. Uh, you know, there have been surveys and others that show that many Russians would want to see a revival of a Russian empire or of the Soviet Union. They believe that they've been done some kind of historical injustice by the by history. Uh, but 
the hardcore, these are the people who will beat up other people, they will demonstrate, they will go to the front, they will take pleasure from the atrocities and the genocide that Putin is committing in Ukraine. Um, you know, there was the recent bombing in that city of Dnipro, That's right. where a civilian apartment was destroyed. Uh, the day after, a very popular Russian television host by the name of Sergei Magdan said, uh, am I happy? Yes, I'm delighted by the bombing. Um, and Ukrainians and Russians should keep in mind that there's that other Ukrainian cities, including Kiev, will be destroyed completely. Mm. Um, and again, there is no military reason for this. There is no strategic reason. It's simply love of destruction. Mm. And as I said, it's a very worrying component in Russian culture. And when the war ends, Russians will have to address this. They will have to psychoanalyze themselves and try to figure out why they have this brutal, violent streak within their mentality. Professor Multal, I know you're very busy. Now, I got two more questions before letting you go. Now, you mentioned the country of China. Let's bring China into the conversation. Again, we know we're in the year of 2023, and according to the latest news, that for China this year, the priority shall be, or again, according to the news, is going to be the economic agenda. But meanwhile, people are also expecting that China shows some sorts of affirmative or other opinions towards the war in Russia, because we know that given the fact the leader of China, of China today and also Vladimir Putin somehow have those close ties or sorts of close relationship, Professor, help us to understand at this moment how should we analyze or how should we diagnose the relationship between Russia and China at this moment? And given the fact today that when we look at Russia's aggressiveness and when we look at Vladimir Putin's behavior, China has to have a say in this. So how much do you think that China actually matter in the war today, I mean, again, in the year of 2023, and how much do you think that China can actually continue either to walk away from this war or continue to support or provide resources to Vladimir Putin? What do you say to that? Well, the, as you recall, a year ago in January, when Putin visited Beijing and he, together with Xi, they they produce that uh, that that statement of eternal friendship and mm. everything else, and this is just the beginning of a long-lasting partnership. And it looked like the alliance between these two countries was becoming very consolidated, very strong. Mm. Uh, might not be eternal, but it was likely to last for many many years. Mm. Well, Putin destroyed that alliance. He undermined it or subverted it by starting the war. Uh, for one thing, as we know now, he never in informed the Chinese of his intention to start the war. Mm. It was a surprise to them. Secondly, he started a war. Mm. Um, 
that one of the key components of Chinese foreign policy over the last 50, 60 years has been to avoid armed conflict. Mm. The Chinese, the, the, the primary strength of China, obviously it's military, that goes without saying, but it's the economy. It's the education that the Chinese regime is providing to the people and thereby creating a cadre of professionals that have managed to transform China mm. from an underdeveloped country in the 1960s to one of the leading and most developed countries today. And that's as a result of China's focus on the economy, mm. on education, on technology. Yes, it has a strong military, but it does everything possible to avoid military entanglements and especially wars. Mm. China needs stability in Eurasia. China had very close economic relations with Ukraine. Mm. They were growing in leaps and bounds. Mm. And it still has very close and increasingly close relations with Central Asia. Well, the war that Putin started is disrupting all of that. Um, it's disrupting the, rela the relationship between China and they know that Putin committed an error. Mm. They feel obligated to give him tacit support by virtue of the fact that there is this alliance. But as you know, the support they give is largely verbal. Mm. Uh, they haven't provided weapons. They haven't, at least to my knowledge, they haven't been providing weapons. They haven't been providing financial assistance. Um, and I read recently in a report in the Financial Times that Chinese leaders are persuaded that thanks to the war, Russia will become a middle power. Mm. Russia will no longer be a great power. And I suspect the Russians know this too. Um, China, if it wanted to, could contribute enormously to ending the war tomorrow. Mm. Uh, it has the leverage. Mm. It has Putin's ear. And, of course, it has the economic leverage, it's got the population leverage, it's got the military leverage to pressure Putin and to tell him that this is a lost cause, he needs to end the war, get out in whichever fashion, come up with some kind of stable peace deal with the Ukrainians, end of story. And then we go back to the status quo ante, so to speak where China can then continue its relations with Russia, with Ukraine, with Europe, with Asia, with the United States, and so on. Um, my guess is that the Chinese are reluctant at this point to do it, uh, perhaps because they're hoping for there to be a Ukrainian victory. I wouldn't be surprised if that was their hope. Uh, one, a victory that would weaken Russia even more and make it even more dependent on China. Uh, you know, that makes geopolitical sense, doesn't it? Um, that may be the calculation. Again, I don't know what's in the mind of Xi and his comrades. Mm. Um, but the question is, will the Chinese pressure Russia? Um, right now, obviously they're not. But it may be the case that if the war continues going badly for Russia, there may be a point at which the Chinese decide to present themselves as the peacekeepers, the mm. peace creators, the mediators between all sides. Um, and they could play that role. They have the clout. 
Um, That's and indeed, right. ideally, if the Chinese and the Americans could could reduce the tensions, uh, they could have even more clout. Um, I can see that happening. Uh, you know, with Russia's diminution in power, it makes sense for China and the United States to get along. That's our professor. Again, I want to wrap up our conversation by going back to the article. Let's bring the U.S. into the picture. We know since the beginning of the war that U.S. government has continuously supported the country of Ukraine. Of course, that actually offered the support. I mean, again, it's not just the financial support, and of course, that would provide uh, unlimited resources. For Ukraine as well to fight against Russia, but at this moment, going back to your article, even though it's a hypothetical situation that Russia is going to collapse and Russia and the war in in Ukraine is going to、um, bring failure to Russia, how do you think that could benefit the U.S. in the long run? Because we know at this moment. The foreign policy under Joe Biden, or the foreign policy from the、uh, from the Americans' per- perspective, has not been effective drastically. So, how do you think that the possible failure or the hypothetical collapse could benefit U.S., especially in terms of foreign policy in the long run, and so that the credibility of the U.S. government? Will be restored. Will shall be restored in the long run. What do you say to that? Again, excellent questions.、Um, you know, there are several answers to this. One is that in the aftermath of the American withdrawal from Afghanistan last year,、mm. the United States looked weak.、Mm. Um, and I suspect that was one of the reasons why Putin decided he could invade. So helping Ukraine and possibly helping Ukraine towards victory,、uh, regardless of what that means concretely, would be a way. Would obviously be a way of restoring credibility in American power, influence, and will.、Um, if Ukraine wins, or if Russia loses and possibly even collapses, clearly. Uh, American influence in Eastern Europe would grow.、Mm. Uh, very likely, Belarus would become completely independent.、Mm. So too would Ukraine, obviously.、Mm. Probably Moldova. I would bet that Georgia, China,、uh, Armenia, and Azerbaijan would also leave the Russian sphere of influence, which opens up. Up all sorts of possibilities,、mm. much more independent than、mm. it is today. Probably it would become closer to India and China,、um, but in any case, all of that is likely to enhance the standing of the United States, the、mm. geopolitical standing of the United States. Add to that that defeating Russia would mean that. Authoritarianism would have been defeated.、Mm. This will also give an impulse to the democratic movements throughout the world. If Russia wins, authoritarian movements will triumph, or at least will feel emboldened. 
if Russia loses, democracy will gain uh, in strength. Hmm. But there is one caveat. Uh, again, all of this sounds like it's great news for the United States. Uh, but many Americans, and including many American policymakers, are wary of a Russian collapse uh, for two reasons. One is they don't know what will happen, and they fear that there might be civil war. 18, 19, 19. Mm. And that could be very destabilizing. It could lead to waves of refugees. Uh, well, anyway, one can easily imagine the consequences. And then the second scenario that is worrisome is that regarding Russia's nuclear weapons. Mm. What would happen to those? And this is similar to the, the concerns in the aftermath of the Soviet Union's collapse. Uh, would terrorists uh, take these weapons would some crazy general seize the weapons and threaten to use them? Uh, all sorts of scenarios, which sound fantastic, but might not be, uh, would be of concern. And again, not just to the United States, of course, they would be of concern to Europe, Asia, uh, arguably the entire world. So that's the fear uh, that people have, that if a collapse takes place, these are some of the consequences that might happen. Well, Professor, again, as we mentioned before, we're in, we're only in a few weeks of 2023, and it's still hard to predict what is going to happen to the war. But we hope in the end that people in both countries started to wake up and realize that war shall never be the solution to any problems. Of course, that really brings the dramatic uh, uh, definition and also uh, detrimental effect on people and also their average lives. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Professor Alexander Moulton. And again, Professor Alexander is a professor of political science at Rutger University in Newark. Professor, thank you so much for taking your time to be on the show. We thoroughly enjoy the conversation. And also, I strongly encourage everyone to go online, look for his article, which is entitled, It's High Time to Prepare for Russia's collapse and I, I believe that after reading this article the same thing as i mentioned before you're going to be well informed and you're going to be educated to the next level but again professor thank you so much for doing this thank you so much for having me and thanks to your audience for putting up with my commentary i hope it was of some interest to you in any case thank you so much you're welcome professor it's always a pleasure to speak to you